0: Hey everyone, I'm Ty McCarthy, and welcome to Canon Pause, the podcast where we watch a movie just to press the pause button and try to figure out what we just watched. But not only the what, but the why of what we just watched. On this episode, we're pressing pause not on a movie, but on everyone's favorite season. Yep, it's that time of year when we gather around with our friends and family and place a microphone and podium out by our fireplaces in hopes that St. Nicholas Cage pronounces our name correctly. And of course, I'm talking about awards season. Award shows have come a long way since the second century BC when Josephus presented gold buttons to the high priest Jonathan for his contributions in aiding Alexander Bales in battle. And not to sound like a boomer, but we do give awards out for just about everything. In fact, earlier today, I accepted an award for being St. Clair County, Missouri's highest rated podcast at the 2023 Potties. I mean, it's a regional potty, but I still got a potty. As early as 776 BC, those wily ancient Greeks were handing out prizes for who could run the farthest naked. And who could lift the most weights? Naked. And who could jump the farthest? Naked. Uh, Eventually, they put clothes on and called it the Olympic Games in 1896. But if sports is all Greek to you, then the first major non-sports-slash-non-war-based awards were awarded in 1906 when a secret group of Swedes voted in secret to grant awards in literature, physics, math, and last but least, peace. So when you get your yellow participation ribbon, you can thank Alfred Nobel for normalizing award shows. Those unfamiliar with award season, think of it like college football bowls. And conversely, if anyone's unfamiliar with college football bowls, think of them like award season. College football has their top tier of bowls called the New Year's Six. Peach, Fiesta, Cotton, Sugar, Orange, and Rose. Likewise, the ecosystem of arts has their top tier of awards too. Tony's, Grammys, Emmys, Golden Globes, Oscars, and Junos. College Football also has a second tier of bowls. Alamo, Sun, Cheez-It, Holiday, Beef, Brady's, and everything else. Similarly, the Arts has their second tier of award shows. People's Choice, VMAs, Kids' Choice, BAFTAs, and any of the ones for country music. Winita Bowl game is the culmination of a successful season. It shows that the hard work put in during summer training camps and two-a-days and all those 13 games paid off. If the Rose Bowl is the granddaddy of bowl games, then the Academy Awards is the granddaddy of all award shows. Well, I guess that means that the Golden Globes is sort of like the festival, but award shows are also a bit like horse racing too, where the same horse can win multiple races. You get a triple crown when you win the Kentucky Derby, the Belmont Stakes, and the Preakness Stakes. Mm, Stakes. This is called egotting, winning an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and a Tony, and it's something that's really hard to achieve. Only 18 people have been able to complete it, and of those 18. Fifteen have only been completed since 1991. Viola Davis is the newest member. She joined the club when she received a Grammy at the 65th Grammy Awards. Now, theoretically, you could be listening to this in the future. And if you are, how are you? How's my podcast doing? More importantly, how am I? Go do a wellness check on me. So, uh... Thanks in advance. Anyway, 73 people who are still alive today, as of recording, are missing just one of the four awards. Three people are missing Emmys, so I guess they just give those out to anyone. Nine people are missing Grammys, 29 people are missing Oscars, and 32 people are missing Tonys. There are so many quirks and caveats to EGOT lore that it would take at least 10 minutes to read the whole page on Wikipedia about it. Like, there's a distinction between competitive and non-competitive, and if you're a producer versus an actor. That being said, only one person, Robert Lopez, has been able to double EGOT he took the shortest amount of time, two, to get all four. Well, eight. He's kind of like the survivor Sandra Diaz-Twine of creative people. And in case you're wondering if the EGOT Club, which I can only assume shares a lobby with the SNL Five-Timers Club, will give a key card to a 19th member, it won't happen at the 95th Academy Awards. Of those 29 people missing an Oscar, zero are nominated this year. Even though there are awards now for just about everything, there's something still special about those Oscars. They have this certain, um, a certain... Well, you know, I bet the French have a phrase for it, but I took Spanish, not French in college, so I'll just paraphrase all Woods. Why now? Why this award show? With that in mind, it's time to push play on your favorite The Academy Is album, because we're about to explore the Academy Awards. Act One, it's an honor just to be nominated. The Academy Awards have been presented annually since 1929 by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Well, every year that is except for 1933. But two were held in 1930, so everything should still add up to 95 in 2023. They predate all other major entertainment awards by 15 years or more. They award Outstanding Achievement, or Merit if you're nasty, in the motion picture industry in 23 categories for work in front of and behind the camera, with a few honorary Oscars sprinkled here and there. Today, the Oscars seem pretty performa. There haven't been major changes to the mechanics of the show in many years. The last time a new category was added was 2002 with Best Animated Feature, although the 94th Academy Awards did cause quite a bit of controversy when they removed eight awards from live broadcast, and instead they opted to award those an hour of showtime, and then only showed highlights of the acceptance speeches right before the commercial breaks. All the awards should be back this year, so get comfy, because you'll be in for a long night. That hasn't always been the case, though. The first awards presentation lasted only about 15 minutes, and invitees already knew that they had won. In fact, for the first couple decades, winners were sent to Los Angeles newspapers so that they could be in the paper the next day. This trend continued until the LA Times broke the gentleman's agreement and published their advance copy in advance of the show in 1940. So Clark Gable and Betty Davis arrived knowing that they had already lost. Since then, the awards have been secured in briefcases by two very sexy accountants working for Price Waterhouse and later Coopers. The process of voting for an Oscar has changed very little over the last 95 years, too. The Academy is broken down into 17 branches, up from the original five, which represent the totality of the filmmaking process. Each branch submits nominees, and then they vote for their respective branch's winners. So, cinematographers vote for Best Cinematography, and costume designers vote for Best Costume. All branches get to vote for Best Picture. All members can vote for Best Documentary and Best Documentary Short, if they attend a special screening, to make sure that they've seen them all. Of course, you already know this because you've paid so close attention to the blurb the announcer says at the end of a four-hour-long show. You know, when they have your undivided attention. As of 2020, the Academy has just under 10,000 members, up from the original 36. Becoming a member is a bit like joining Soho House. You need to be invited by two sponsors who are current members, and then they tell two friends, and then they tell two friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. Each branch has their own unique criterion for membership, but it all sort of boils down to be active in the filmmaking process and or be nominated in your respective field. Since 2016, the Oscars have been in the process of retooling how their membership eligibility works in order to be more diverse and inclusive and better reflect the people that make up the film industry. Like all industries in America, the Oscars are not immune to the problems that everyone outside the TMZ deals with. Crippling student loan debt, affordable housing crisis, traffic pollution, the Adderall shortage, and of course, systemic racism. Hattie McDaniel was the first African American to win an Oscar at the 12th Academy Awards in 1940. Awesome. However, at the show, she wasn't even allowed to sit with the rest of her white cast members. She wasn't even allowed to attend the Atlanta premiere of Gone with the Wind because of segregated Jim Crow laws in Georgia. While she is an actor of remarkable talent, which rightly should be celebrated, her role as an enslaved person working on a white family's plantation in Georgia points to the limited kinds of roles available for black actors to play. The next black Oscar winner would be Sidney Poitier at the 36th Academy Awards, and it would be another 19 years before we got a third winner with Louis Gossett Jr. The hashtag OscarsSoWhite wasn't just about zero people of color being nominated in the acting awards in 2016. But it was highlighting the larger fact that this has been a prolonged and systemic issue in the film industry since its inception. It's something that Richard Pryor addressed straight on in his opening remarks when he hosted the 49th Academy Award. And he said it was sort of a deer-in-the-headlights look in front of a mostly all-white crowd. I'm here tonight to explain why no black people will ever be nominated for anything. And that's also my best Richard Pryor impression, so goodnight everybody. Nominees also skew male. 2010 was the first time a woman had won the Oscar for Best Director. That was Catherine Bigelow in 2009's The Hurt Locker. Since then, only two other women have joined her, Louise Zal for Nomadland and Jane Champion for The Power of the Dog. There is definitely room for improvement to build out that pipeline from film school to red carpet that recognizes achievements in the craft that is broader than just one point of view. Some days I'm wide-eyed and optimistic about the future, hopeful that those in seats in power in the Team Z are making choices that will move the industry out of its harmful patterns, that they'll always be on the lookout for blind spots and ways to correct errors from the past. Other days, I'm hopelessly and depressingly pessimistic. Nothing will change. Because the cesspool of elites will only make choices that benefit themselves, which maintain and preserve the status quo, because the status quo is profitable. And since power's one goal is goals to keep itself alive, the cycle of despair never ends, because the city of Hollywood was built on a stagnant swamp some 200 years ago, and very little has changed. It stank then and it stinks now. Only today is the fetish of corruption that hangs in the air. <gasps> <sighs> will the Lisa Simpson voice in my head win? I don't know. I do know that self-growth is slow, and societal growth is even slower. These societal strides didn't just happen. We're able to look back and see progress because individuals stood up and made a choice. People like April Rain, who challenged the industry to do better, which started with a simple hashtag. It's the women who are bold enough to share their stories of harassment so that the next generation of women and girls in the industry don't have to deal with that nonsense. If we fast forward in time, Five years from now, the youth of the world will unite in Los Angeles for the Olympics. LA is hosting for the third time. Hollywood is also passing out the Academy Awards of Merit for the hundredth time. So you better believe there are going to be retrospectives at the wazoo leading up to both those events. Oh, and the cherry on top is it's a presidential election year in November. So 2028 is going to be a big year. Huge. Big. We use these big events like the Olympics or the Oscars or an election as broad benchmarks for ourselves and our society. They are like a snapshot of our societal vital signs we can measure over time. Or, because why stop at two similes, they're like time capsules. We're able to look back and see the path that we've taken between each event. We take time to celebrate the progress we've made, and we also go forward knowing that there's still capacity for improvement. We pause, we remember, and we mourn for those who are no longer walking along with us. We go forward knowing that at times we are going to mess up, but we will try to quickly realize that and correct the error. As we learn from the path we and others have already walked, we make a plan for the future excited for the path ahead of us. So between now and the 100th Academy Awards, who is the person you want to be? What steps are you going to take to move yourself onto that path? And give yourself some grace. It's not going to be perfect, but we know that already. Every now and then a crash is gonna beat a Brokeback Mountain, but we still move forward. With all its warts, why would we watch with wistful wonder women and men win awards? It can feel a little bit self-indulgent, something for the coastal elites, not something for the Midwest and our lower middle class proclivities. I still think that at its core it's honoring the best and brightest in the industry. As silly as it seems to crown a winner in something as so subjective as the arts, I think the adage, it's an honor to be nominated, is true. Each nominee did something groundbreaking, provocative, or innovative that added their mark to this profoundly simple human creation that is storytelling. And the film industry isn't unique. Pretty much every industry has some type of awards. This one just happens to be super public-facing. Children's Literature has the Newbery Medal. Car and washing machines have the J.D. Power Awards. Pacifists have their Nobel Peace Prize. City planners have an annual award called the National Planning Excellence Awards. Why, earlier today, I actually presented the Zoni Award to the mayor of Kansas City for the new terminal building at Kansas City International Airport. Peer recognition is a key component to finding your identity in a community. Whether you're seeking that validation in an Employee of the Month plaque or seeking community online through an online risk tournament, I mean... That's very specific. Who does that? All of those achievements are like winning your own personal academy award, or hoisting the Rose Bowl trophy. Because remember I made a sports allegory earlier? Fans cheer and partake in specific traditions when their hometown professional football team plays in the copyrighted named game. They not only find community by partaking in the rituals associated with the game, they also form connections. After all, that is why we are on this planet, to belong, connect, to love, and be loved. That is why people watch the Oscars. It's the same source code for why people watch Registered Trademark Championship Professional Football Game. If you want to hold your own actual Academy Award, it's probably like how someone gets to Carnegie Hall. It depends on the direction they're coming from. For some, it's because their parents are actors, and they already have an in. Others get, quote, discovered, while others work their way up through the acting ranks from community theater to commercials to background work. But one path I know for sure is how the Oscar himself gets there. And the Potty Award for Best Transition Between Paragraphs goes to me, he said smugly. About three months prior to the Oscars, the 50 statuettes, measuring 13.5 inches tall, made up of solid bronze coated in 24-karat gold with a phoenix feather core, are created. Until recently, they were still created at a foundry in the Chicago suburb of Batavia, Illinois. You might not find an Oscar in Chicagoland, but you still can find the affordable and reliable Kia Sportage Hybrid at any one of the three Chicagoland Kia dealerships. Kia, movement that inspires. If you add up all the Oscars that have been awarded so far, it's just over 3,100. But sometimes a few of them get lost, like in 2000 when 52 of them were thrown away and Willie Fogler found them in the trash outside a Koreatown grocery store just a couple weeks before the show. Then in 2002, Whoopi Goldberg sent her 1990 Oscar for Ghost to be cleaned and it was found in the trash at LAX. The thieves in both cases apparently got cold feet and didn't want to keep their ill-gotten gains. But the most famous missing Oscar belongs to Hattie McDaniel. It was on display at Howard University and vanished in the 1960s and its whereabouts are still unknown. You may not remember the first time you sat down and actually watched the show, or have ever given a second thought to the logistics of the rival times for all those celebrities on the red carpet, but I bet you've seen a movie and thought, that was the best movie I've ever seen. That movie may not have gotten any nominations that year, but for you, in that moment, as you process the meaning and symbolism of what you just watched and begin to unpack it and apply it to the path your life has taken, That is a non-copyrighted, award-winning moment. It doesn't matter if it's the high camp of Mommy Dearest or the blatant cash grab that is the Emoji Movie. If it's the best movie you saw that year, then critics be damned, give it an award. Act Two, For Your Consideration. The Academy Awards awards have grown from 12 awards to 23 awards over the last 94 years of awarding awards. Rather than discontinuing an award, the Academy tries to merge awards back into the larger award category, like how sound editing and sound mixing were re-merged into best sound. However, one notable example is the discontinuation of the Juvenile Academy Award. These were given out to child actors until 1961. The Academy itself sets the program of the evening. The order of the awards presented is flexible from year to year with only minor adjustments, and you don't really notice that there's a difference unless you're recording a podcast about the Academy Awards and you watch all of the old ceremonies for research. Before the show even starts, tens of hundreds of people turn into ABC to watch people get out of cars and walk 152 meters down a closely guarded secret hue of carpet called Academy Red it has come to my attention recently that I'm not particularly the most fashioned forward of individuals. I was shocked, shocked, I say, to learn this. To my critics, I say, then why is it on the sale rack at Macy's, huh? Exactly. I yield back the remainder of my time. There are whole ecosystems devoted to who arrived with who and whom, and also how who got to be wearing what, when, and why. This is not one of those places. Surface, I to say, Emma Gerber, your hair must have taken hours, and you look really pretty. Once all the guests have arrived, that's when I normally turn on the TV. I generally skip all that pre-show interview stuff. Maybe I'll switch it up this year, challenge myself, expand my worldview, and watch it. That being said, having watched a lot of the old red carpets, they are chaotic AF. Just a mass of people walking in all directions with no rhyme or reason, and not a cell phone in sight. Just people enjoying the moment. We have a very streamlined red carpet system these days, and we should be thankful for that. A show generally starts with the host doing an opening monologue with a bit of self-deprecating humor to make him relatable to middle America, and then some crowd work to poke fun at the nominees and other Hollywood staples, mix in some zingers about politicians and current events, and just like that, we're off and running, presenting the first award of the evening. The position of master of Ceremonies for a show is an ancient one, even those wild and crazy ancient Greeks had MCs for their shows. I'm not sure if the MCs were naked too, but I do know that a fully clothed Jack Lemon had 20 minutes to kill, because believe it or not, the show wrapped up early. And to fill time, he just invited people on stage to dance. Bob Hope holds the record of hosting 14 times and co-hosting an additional five more. Whoopi Goldberg, who has hosted four times, was the first woman to host Solo, as Agnes Moorhead was the first woman to host when she co-hosted with Dick Powell. Uh, um... All I'm going to say is that if David Letterman ever wanted to redo his Oprah Uma bit, now would be the time to do so. Jimmy Kimmel was set to host the 95th Academy Awards for the third time, while the 94th Academy Awards saw the return to hosts in the form of Amy Schumer, Regina Hall, and Wanda Sykes as the 93rd, 92nd, and 91st Academy Awards didn't have a host. You may remember that in 2019, Kevin Hart was supposed to host, but was asked to step down after a string of homophobic tweets from 2009 were unearthed. It was the first time that the Academy Awards didn't have a host since the 61st Academy Awards in 1989. And that show goes down in history as being, quote, very bad. The show was so bad, how bad was it, that the Academy made concerted efforts in the early 90s to make sure that a ceremony like the 61st would never happen again. It was panned as one of the worst Academy Awards ever, but still was one of the most watched ratings-wise of the 80s and 90s. It was called cringe, awkward, and awful, but it also innovated the post-award green room and press circuit experience for all the winners. And it was the last public appearance of legend Lucille Ball, who died a few weeks later. It created wardrobe malfunction levels of outrage, spawned an angry letter signed by stars like Julie Andrews, Paul Newman, and former Academy president Gregory Peck. It's not every day you get Mary Poppins, Dress, and Atticus Finch mad at you. Usually it's just two out of three. It even prompted a lawsuit from the Walt Disney Company, but it gave us the phrase, and the Oscar goes to which we still use today. On first watch, it does give heavy levels of cringe, even for me. And that's saying something coming from a Virgo, who replays all of his most embarrassing moments nightly before bed. It's like we're Max Goof, forced to sit through a show at Lester's Possum Park, more than a professional presentation highlighting the best in the business. For those of you who haven't spent 12 minutes of your life watching it online, here's a short synopsis. Snow White, performed by Elaine Bowman, stands outside the theater worried she's late. After making her way through the audience singing parody lyrics of a popular song, sort of like a You Sing or Scandals production, Snow White welcomes us to the Oscars and reminisces about the old parties at the famous Coconut Grove Lounge. The curtain behind her rises, and we find ourselves in the romantic Coconut Grove, with people sitting at tables, dancers on the dance floor dancing, and waitstaff who are also dancing. It evokes a certain, certain, um, no se sé que about old Hollywood. Then Charlie O'Donnell of Wheel of Fortune fame introduces Merv Griffin of Wheel of Fortune fame, as he sings the opening lines of I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts, remixed with that classic Brazilian riff from the Wally trailer, Merv and Snow begin to introduce the folks who are sitting at the tables. They turn out to be stars of yesteryear, cleverly hidden in plain sight, and they each get a fun little dance moment in the spotlight. Had it stopped there, it would have just been a very 80s intro, relegated to a forgotten part of Academy lore. Hardly anyone ever talks about the opening number to the year prior, which featured parody lyrics of a chorus line as actors stood in Hollywood Square-style boxes, and then some uncanny valley men without faces and gold leotards were rolled out like living Oscars who begin to dance. But back to 1989. Merv then says to Snow that he has one more surprise for her, her blind date, Rob Lowe, and they begin singing a parody version of Proud Mary, and they are joined by a Lucy impersonator with an oversized pina colada hat on. And probably the most cringe-inducing moment for me is when the trio are singing. Tables gain sentience, and they stand up, and they begin to dance. So it's not just the tables, but the chairs are dancing too. And the lamp that was the centerpiece is now a hat. Hats are beginning to be a motif here, but it's not done. The scene dissolves when we find Snow and Lowe singing in front of the box office of the Groman's Chinese Theater as a brigade of ushers form a kick line, culminating in the iconic silhouette rising above Snow White, and it's now standing, sparkling and glittering, towering above her as she's now wearing it as a hat. She's now changed into a large glowing gown as well as everyone begins to sing a rousing anthem of Hooray for Hollywood. And it's still not done. Out of the now box office hat, steps Lily Tomlin and acknowledges that 1.5 billion people were wondering what we just watched. And then there's a literally poorly landing shoe joke. Like I said, on first watch, it is cringe. It is a lot to take in and digest. But as often the case is in life, things aren't always as they seem. So let's examine the case of the 1989 Academy Awards. Wait, that's not me. That's musical hell. To unpack the mystery of how the 1989 Oscars came to be, we need to go all the way back in time to 1974 on the streets of North Beach in San Francisco. When Steve Silver was leaving a restaurant, he saw a guitar player singing to make some money and thought, you know what, I could do this too. So nearly overnight, he and a friend worked on some costumes and constructed a show. It proved to be quite successful and they landed a six week run of a show at a local venue. That venue wasn't very wide, it had a floor seating with this deep U-shaped ring of balconies or, or box seats on the second level. This created a very tall ceiling with a very narrow stage. And since the only available real estate was to go up, up he went. Silver's show was called Beach Blanket Babylon. It featured wildly elaborate hats and wigs, celebrity impressions, parodies of popular songs, and topical references. And the grand finale being a hat with the full skyline of San Francisco replete with lights, golden Gate bridge, and a running trolley. It was a smash hit, said to be a love letter from the city from one of its own. From there, it became a camp sensation. The show was ever-evolving to stay fresh. It would even spawn residencies in London and Vegas. But its opening framing device stayed constant. At the start of the show, audience were greeted by a newcomer who had just moved to the city, Snow White, searching San Fran high and low for her Prince Charming. Beach Blanket Babylon wasn't widely known outside of San Fran, which I'm told by locals is the only appropriate abbreviation for the city. It was one of those quirky open secrets like how people in Missouri view Branson or how people in Chicago view improv. Nearly 15 years into its run, creator Steve Silver would team up with Oscars producer Alan Carr and Beach Blanket Babylon took its talents to South Beach, or SoCal, and that included the costumes, the parody song lyrics, the larger-than-life hats, and of course, Snow White. It was the ultimate rags-to-riches story, from just making $25 that first night in North Beach to being seen by 1.5 billion people. Well, I guess it was the 70s, so 25 bucks was like $2 million back then. But it's also San Francisco, so it's probably only going to get you a studio. But still, 1.5 billion people! Camp was no longer on the edge of society. It was front and center that night on the Oscars. It was boldly saying to the world, All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And the world was not ready for it. This gaudy and bold opening number and the reaction it created reminded me of something else. Reminded me of an event that happened 10 years prior created by another Steve, two time zones away, and just down the street from where I'm at now. Okay, fine, a highway. On a steamy summer evening in Chicago in mid-July 1979, shock jock and self-proclaimed anti-disco advocate Steve Dahl convinced the White Sox owners to have a disco demolition night, which nearly created a citywide riot. I first learned about this night on Video Hits 1's show I Love the 70s and thought, wow, what a quirky little story. And if memory serves me correctly, it was presented as just a party that got way out of control and the moment that disco ended, in order to make way for the hair, metal, rock, and electric synth pop of the 80s. And I didn't really give it a second thought. That is until I moved to Chicago. Upon moving to Chicago, I started listening to a lot more NPR on WBEZ. I had a lot of time to fill on my commutes out to Aurora, so I started listening to a history podcast called Backstory. These shows set the record straight on Disco Demolition Night. Now, you could just not like disco music. That's fine. But what VH1 didn't do was tell me that disco sucks was coded language. And what I mean by that is that it's not just people not liking disco. I know that sounds repetitive and redundant, but it was a deeper hatred of what disco represented. Disco, which was created in the 60s by black and Latino DJs in New York and Philadelphia, gained popularity as a soundtrack at gay bathhouses and nightclubs in the 70s. This underground musical sensation burst into the pop culture scene like a beam of light off the shattered mirror of the disco ball. Disco was a source of creativity, joy, and life for gays and people of color. But for others, it represented everything they didn't like about America. The election of 1988 confirmed that voters wanted more of the same, more of the conservative Reaganism by electing the former director of the CIA and vice president, George H.W. Bush, This is the backdrop that the 61st Academy Awards was playing against, and I can't help but wonder if the cringe and the outrage that this show created shares that same source code as the Disco Sucks movement. This show was high camp, and camp is a bit of cringe, but in a playful way. It's in on the joke, and it is a very popular way of expressing oneself for those in the LGBTQ community. Looking at the gay films of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, camp is how someone could express themselves and say that they were gay, but still have plausible deniability in an industry where being out was career-ending. The show's producer was an openly gay man named Alan Carr, and he was very familiar with Camp. He produced Grease 2, La Jolla de las Locas on Broadway, and the Bend de la Creme of Camp musicals Can't Stop the Music. Fun fact, the village people never actually plainly addressed the sexuality of the band members or the characters in the movie. Steve Silver had brought Camp to the biggest stage in the world, but was simultaneously dealing with his own issues offstage. A year prior to the Oscars, Steve began to go to a doctor under a pseudonym and learned that he was HIV positive. He hid his diagnosis from his friends, his family, and his cast members of Beach Blanket for six years. Trying to distance himself from rumors that he was gay, he married his longtime friend, Joe Schumann, in 1994. A year later, in 1995, Steve Silver died of complications related to HIV and AIDS. He was 51. We like to use events as mile markers to see how we've changed. Medical breakthroughs have helped people become undetectable and therefore untransmittable when they learn that they are positive. But there are states out there right now passing laws banning the camp art form of drag, which to me shares that same source code of disco sucks. If you say the quiet part out loud, they just want to make being queer illegal. My hope, dear reader, is that if you're listening to this episode in 2028, as you are awash with retrospectives about the Oscars on their upcoming 100th celebration, the Olympics, and just politics in general, you'll probably see a mention of the 61st Academy Awards in passing. And I'll probably point out that this was a low point for the show. This is the show that almost killed the Oscars as we know it. My hope is that when you get to this part about banning drag, we will have put that matter to bed. It'll be a vague, distant memory, similar to how we don't remember the Hollywood Square as a course line opening of the 60th Academy Award, or how we don't remember the Alamo. The next year, in 1990, they returned to having a host. Billy Crystal would kick off his first of nine runs hosting. He kept it simple. He did the exact same bit nine times. And I'll admit, it's a very good bit. Even though he swears he won't sing, and there won't be a big opening number, he ends up doing both, singing a big opening number. He mixes the plots, the Best Picture nominees to popular songs in a humorous fashion. Rob Lowe would bounce back too. He would later star in Wayne's World and Parks and Rec. But it tanked the career of Alan Carr. He died far away from Hollywood in 1999. Elaine Bowman, Snow White, her list of credits on IMDb isn't very lengthy either. She signed a 13 year gag order saying she would never talk about the show. She couldn't really find work, so she moved away. But she did tell Inside Edition in 2019 that she's glad she had done it. And looking back, she wouldn't have changed a thing. And as for Beach Blanket Babylon, well, it ran for 45 years becoming the world's longest-running musical review show. It finally closed in 2019, a few months after the 91st Academy Awards aired, without a host for the first time since 1989. Act 3, and the Oscar goes to... Every year, people place bets on who will win. What movie will win Best Picture? What color of the Gatorade will be poured on the Best Director winner? That kind of stuff. So, below is a cheat sheet to explain each category to help you win your Oscar pool. Oh, you want me to read it to you? Okay, I can do that. Yeah, okay. Let's start. Best Supporting Actress and Actor. Supporting Actress usually kicks off the evening, not sure why, but here we go. Then Supporting Actor is buried somewhere in the middle of the broadcast. A supporting role is typically a role that takes up 20 to 30 minutes of screen time and is usually a supporting role like a spouse, a parent, a sidekick, or a villain. This category wasn't included until the 9th Academy Awards, and they were actually giving plaques, not Oscar, statuettes, but then in 1944, the Academy decided that they too can get participation trophies. Famous winners on this list include everyone, because they're all celebrities. A previous submission, Hattie McDaniel. she won in this category. Tayden O'Neill was the youngest winner at 10. And Ariana DeBose won for playing Anita in West Side Story, the exact same character that Rita Morano won for decades earlier. We at Can We Posit love a good quirk. Posthumorously, so don't laugh, Heath Ledger won for his role in The Joker. Mahershala Ali was the seventh actor to win this category twice, while only Shelley Winters and Diane West have won more than one. And typically, the winners come back and present the award the next year, like how Miss America comes back to crown the latest victor for the quarter quell. Best Sound. Now remember that word best, because it's a bit of a misnomer. Even though it's used for shorthand for any category, it's important to remember that best should be interpreted as important, or having done great achievement in the craft. It used to be two awards, sound editing and sound mixing. Editing pertains to sound effects, ADR, and music, while mixing pertains to balancing levels and reverb. But it was almost too confusing, so they just merged them back together. As you might assume, winners in this category are often sci-fi, fantasy, or action-adventure movies. 2012 had an unusual event happen when Skyfall and Zero Dark Thirty tied for Best Sound Editing. Double neat. Best Cinematography Cinnamon topography is how the camera moves around and lets us see the action in a powerful, dynamic way. Until the 40th Academy Awards, this was presented one for color and one for black and white. Although more modern black and white films still have one Schindler's List, Roma, and Mank. Just to name a few, because they're the only ones. Best documentary, short subject, and documentary feature. A documentary film is a true story about seven strangers forced to live in a house and have their lives taped. Short subject just means it has to be under 40 minutes. Thank God. I mean, I love documentaries. There are additional caveats for how much of that can be partial recreation, stock footage, or animation, but the emphasis is on true. But what is truth? asked the Velveteen Rabbit. Truth is, we don't know. But we do know that of the 26 Oscars that Walt Disney won, most were for this category, not his animated features. Best visual effects. Affects? effects okay i don't know this award goes to the movie that can hide the use of green screen the best as you might imagine blockbuster movies dominate this category just look at the 2000s gladiator fellowship of the ring the two towers the return of the king spider-man 2 pirates of the caribbean Man's chest curious case benjamin button and avatar all three of the original star wars one as well as all three of the original lord of the rings you might have guessed that one because i just listed it the point is Unlike some other categories, sequels seem to dominate this category. From Genesis to Exodus to Iliad and the Odyssey, sequels have been around for a—sorry, <laughs> force of habit. Best animated short and animated feature. Shorts again are short, like 1971's winner, The Crunch Bird, which clocked in at a whopping two minutes long. And I'm sure Walt Disney just loved that his eight-minute short, The Old Mill, won while his feature, Snow White, wasn't even nominated. Prior to 2001, the Academy was a lot less methodical with its approach to animation. Even without the Animated Feature Award, Beauty and the Beast was still the first all-animated feature to be nominated for Best Picture in 1991. It lost to Silence of the Lambs. And it was quite likely that the exclusion of WALL-E from Best Picture in 2008 let the Academy rethink its Best Picture nomination process and expand the category from 5 to up to 10. A24's the Shell with shoes on had to make sure that it had more than 75% of stop-motion effects. afex, To be considered. Best International Film. Mesdames et Messieurs, bienvenue à London et jour de London 2012. Oh, okay, that's all the French I know. This category, the Academy acts more like the Olympic Committee than an award show. Countries submit films rather than directors. And little-known fact, the Olympics used to give out prizes in the arts until, like, 1940. They stopped doing so because it was deemed that the arts are too, quote, subjective. Hmm, go figure. The Olympics instead have shifted to what is known as the Cultural Olympiad, with events, presentations, concerts, all celebrating the arts and the humanities in that host city. And, of course, we would already know that had Chicago won the bid in 2016. I'm not bitter whatsoever. The next Olympics will be in Paris, France in 2024, hosting for the third time. The Olympics are expected to uh, wait uh, wrong podcast. Uh, sorry for more of my hot takes on Olympics. You can check out my other podcast. Can we jump over that? Check your local listings. Best live action short film. Like its more boring cousin from the country, the documentary's short subject, these films also have to be under 40 minutes. But unlike the drab, duller documentary, these can be fictional. My one Oscar controversy for live-action short is that the 1957 classic, The Red Balloon, or as it's pronounced in French, El Globo Rojo, won Best Original Screenplay, and it wasn't nominated for Best Live-Action Short. My guy, that movie has no dialogue. 2019's winner, The Neighbor's Window, He's based on one of my favorite stories from the Love and Radio podcast. It is hauntingly romantic and sweetly creepy, but you don't have to take my word for it. I wonder if that episode of Love and Radio got a potty award. Best Costume Design Four words, who are you wearing? One, two, three, four. Yeah, that's four. For the majority of this category, it came down to two words, Edith Head. She was nominated for a whopping 35 Academy Awards, and she won eight of those. She's also the inspiration for Edna Mode, and guest, of Disney Pixar fame. Costumes tell their own story. Subtle prints and colors symbolize different features and attributes of the characters that wear them. According to the Toronto Star on Wikipedia for Best Costume, only three winners since 1967 have been set in, quote, modern times reflecting, quote, modern dress, Travel With My Aunts, All That Jazz, and The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which is now banned in Tennessee. Best Original and or Adapted Screenplay The next two awards presented usually are presented by the same two presenters. They are original and adapted screenplay. The main difference is one is a unique story first told in script, while the other is adapting a previously existing work into a script. There I go again, using the word to define itself, but you get the idea. If Miss Frizzle picked us up and took us into the life of a movie, the screenplay would be the skeletal system of that movie. The rest of the body of the movie is built around this. So I guess instead of bone marrow, inside the bones is the story core. Eh? Eh? Get it? It's a, it's a little, little NPR joke, you know? Okay, settle in because there's ten more of these, and if you think this is long, just wait till you actually watch the show. Best score. This is a favorite category of mine. Music makes movies memorable. Ahead of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One, I listened to the score on iTunes nonstop. So when I was at the movie, I literally like felt. The three D music cues happening around, and one of my favorite parts of the ceremony is actually the in credits. Traditionally, they play a medley of all the most memorable songs and music cues, and then the announcer explains the voting process. Blah 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 blah. And if they don't, the music is posted on YouTube, so I can still get my medley fix. Best film editing. This is how the film is put together. Back in the day, an editor would literally cut out sections of a film frame by frame. This is where we get the phrase, left on the cutting room floor. Do you use that phrase in real life? If you do, let me know. Fun fact, did you know that Walter Merck, director of the Academy Award, nominated Return to Oz? Wait, what? How on earth did I miss that? Return to Oz was nominated for Best Visual Effects? Effects? I don't know what to say. I'm beside myself. Well, anyway, Walter is the only person to win Best Sound Mixing and Best Film Editing, if, if that means anything to you now. Best Production Design This is all the physical world building for the movie. The backdrops, the sets, the props, and the like. And you'd be surprised that even contemporary set movie sets still have to set a cohesive look and feel. 2016's Best Picture winner, La La Land, was set in 2015's Los Angeles, but has a look and feel more akin to a pharmaceutical commercial. Oh, sorry, I read that wrong. Best Production Design winner. Even 2016's Best Picture winner, Moonlight, was set in contemporary times, but still created a unique visual look, thanks in part to the, quote, by-lighting effect. Effects. Effects? Best Original Song Again, one of my favorite categories, and again, this is one that creates a lot of Oscar moments. Who could forget when Bradley Cooper sang that that one song with um, uh, that one person who was in the movie that they were both in. It was truly... Unforgettable. Traditionally, throughout the show, the songs that are nominated for this category are performed throughout the show by the artist. And you think that musicals would dominate because of their catchy tunes that we already know and love from the Broadway. But all of those songs are not eligible. A song needs to be new, debuting specifically for that movie. There are even rules on when a song can be played during the movie. It can't be too far into the end credits. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Basically, it has to be the first song of the end credits to qualify. Best Makeup and Hair Styling. Helping turn everyday actors into historical figures and help transport us to places near and far and everywhere in between, the nominees in this category have suspended our disbelief long enough to make us believe that Meryl Streep is the Iron Lady and that Russell Crowe can sing. Here are the nominees for Best Hair and Makeup Styling. All's Quiet on the Western Front. The Batman Black Panther, Wakanda Forever Elvis The Whale And the Oscar goes to... Eh, just practicing. Best Director Ooh, now it's getting good. This category serves as a bellwether, showing whether or not it will win Best Picture. 7 out of 9 times, it does. As I mentioned before, this is one of those high profile awards. It's indicative of how healthy the Hollywood pipeline is. After back to back years of lady directors winning, not a single lady was nominated for the 95th Academy Awards. So if they liked it, they should have put a nomination on it. Best Actress and Actor Leading Role When it comes to leads, Tom Hanks is the only actor to win back to back. While katherine Hepburn won back-to-back back in 1968 with her second win that was also tied with Barbra Streisand for Funny Girl of Leah Michelle fame. Daniel Day-Lewis is the leader of the leading actors with three wins, but katherine Hepburn is the GOAT with four wins. No other actor even comes close. Well, I guess except for Daniel Day-Lewis because he has three wins. But still. And as you might guess, Meryl Streep is the Susan Luci of the Oscars with 17 nominations and only two wins. Best Picture The Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Of Mice and Men, Citizen Kane, Sunset Boulevard, all classic pictures that have reverberated throughout our culture and have touched the hearts and lives of millions, if not billions of people, all of which did not win Best Picture. And again, as a reminder, Best Should Be Read more as important for the year, not so much the best. What we're looking for here is what movie hits all of the technical buttons all of the art buttons, all of the acting buttons, all of the story buttons, but also presses that one mysterious zeitgeist button. And it's also sort of a popularity contest. The Academy does have some strict anti-lobbying rules, so you can't just flat out promote your movie. You have to put them for your consideration. Voting for this category uses ranked choice voting, and all branches are eligible. Then PricewaterhouseCoopers tallies the votes and then puts them in a sealed envelope ready to be read by Jack Nicholson. He's presented this award eight times, and for some reason, it it really just suits him like he's just so ideal for this i have no idea why but i love it occasionally it feels like the academy does get it wrong it's like when the electoral college doesn't match up with the popular vote winner as i mentioned before sometimes crash will beat out brokeback mountain if podcasts are your thing check out the oscar went to wherever podcasts are sold and if you're a visual learner check out be kind rewind both of these are great deeper dives into the year by year of who won who and whom and more importantly what's going on behind the scenes to find out the why of why they won Epilogue. Here are the nominees. Full disclosure, I'm not in the Academy. I'm still a little bitter that my role in 2008's No Burgers for Bigfoot was not nominated for Best Supporting Actor, nor Best Picture. But, I digress. That's a real thing, go look me up on IMBD. For being the pinnacle of success in Hollywood, you're kind of hard-pressed to find an actual movie that includes the Oscars as a plot point. 1993's The Bodyguard, which was nominated for Best Song, in that Whitney Houston is a star who is stalked by a fan and hires a um, um, private security officer. And the climax of that movie is set in a fictitious Academy Awards ceremony. And now for something completely different, Naked Gun 33 and a third, which did not get any nominations for some reason, has a famous climactic scene where Leslie Nielsen, of the Nielsen's rating system fame, has to disarm a soy bomb hidden in the Best Picture envelope, which leads to the world's most famous facepalm. Things really start to get meadow with A Star is Born from 1937. Academy Award winner Janet Gaynor is playing Academy Award nominee for Best Actress. So she earned an Academy Award nominee for playing Best Actress for playing an Academy Award winner for Best Actress. The 1954 remake does the same thing. Academy Award winner Judy Garland plays an Academy Award winner who got nominated at the Academy Awards and then were nominated in real life. Thankfully, that Osmodian Cascade stops with the next two remakes. They switch it to the Grammys. But both of those performers have won Oscars. So all four leading ladies of *Stars Star is Born have won Oscars, and the two that played Grammy winners were also Grammy winners in real life. So I'm open to be cast in the next remake of A Star is Born, me a Bradley Cooper type with some Lady Gaga type winning a Tony. And even though it hasn't garnered much in-movie universe usage, it has, however, received 54 Emmy Awards. Nine full days of Oscar television coverage have won awards. Unlike the Oscars, this episode is only coming in around 50 minutes, so no need to bump the local news into tomorrow. After the show, Hollywood Boulevard will reopen and begin to revert to normal, and tourists will again descend upon the Walk of Fame to take pictures with an off-brand Mickey and Elmo and the seasons of life roll into the next. Maybe it's not the Oscars or a championship game. Maybe it's just New Year's or a birthday or some other type of anniversary. Whatever it is, take time to celebrate and pause and reflect upon that date. Enjoy all the rituals that are associated with that occasion. And just sit back and relax, be present, and enjoy your loved ones and your tolerated ones. Don't be afraid of all the pomp and its zany cousin circumstance, because it's all there as a vehicle for you to connect and grow with others. That might be a good final thought for a wild episode of Jerry Springer, but you know what? It's true. Have any favorite Oscar moments? Have you ever won your Oscar pool? How do you think your favorite movies are going to fare this year at the Oscars? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Send me an email at canweposit at gmail.com. Shoot me a message and follow me for more Oscar quirks on Instagram at canweposit. And be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast so you can be notified when the next episode is out. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad you got this far, and I really hope you learned something because it was really a ton of fun to make, and I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank my family uh, my mom and Kevin, and dad, and Melissa, my brother and uh, his wife, Erin, and of course, their kids. And I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, my producer, my agent, my legal team at Ruben's Case, Ruben's Cambiano on bryant everyone on the warner brothers lot oh my god thank you so much thanks to the wonderful people at y joe media they were amazing they did amazing work on my theme music thank you to the staff at kqed tv kron tv and the san francisco gate san francisco chronicle and the sf bay times for all that wonderful background information cheryl you're wonderful oh my god um um who else thank you to uh leslie friedrich Luisa, Brigitte, marta and little gretel oh i know i'm forgetting something um uh, leave a rating too if you'd like i really appreciate it that promotes me more on uh, all the channels oh my god i love you man Um, all my behind the scenes team i love you regina king you are a goddess i love you oh my god everyone i love you all james l brooks i love you i love you i love you oh my god thank you oh and kurt god bless kurt thank you thank you thank you i am king of the world